Thanks for joining us on the Who, What, Why podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sheckman. Long before the internet, in the early days of talk radio, the all-night hosts were the progenitors of what was then modern-day conspiracy theory. Hosts spent hours talking about crop circles, animal mutilation, Area 51, and all manner of events and evidence that could be used to construct a hidden narrative. The idea then, just as we've seen evolve in the past several weeks with Jeffrey Epstein, was that strange things were happening, that evidence in plain sight could be interpreted in ways that evolved to different conclusions. The narrative was always about the interpretation of evidence that was in plain sight. We were told that we just didn't understand the full impact of what it meant. Today, all of this has changed. Almost like science, the conspiracy theories of today from people like Alex Jones and Donald Trump are not about another way of interpreting the world. It's all about flat-out lies, fabricated rumors, and it's often presented with the only backup being the mantra people are saying. In so doing, this new way in which conspiracies are presented undermines the very fabric of democracy as it discourages events from being looked at with legitimate alternate interpretations. We're going to look at this today with my guests, Harvard professor Nancy Rosenblum and Dartmouth professor Russell Muirhead. They're the authors of a new book entitled A Lot of People Are Saying, and it is my pleasure to welcome them here to the Who, What, Why podcast. Nancy, Russell, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having Glad us. Glad to be here. It's great Thank to have you. you both here. Nancy, start with you. Why should we even be spending real time talking about this whole notion of conspiracy theories? Well, for one thing, because whenever a new phenomenon really takes over public life, the way this new conspiracism has, it's worth noting. And um, it's also, we find, quite disorienting. That is, it's one thing to have a conspiracy theory, which is an explanation as event, of events, and your introduction was just wonderful, Jeff. Uh, it's another thing to have bare assertions that an election is rigged or that the National Park Service has doctored photographs of the inauguration to, show, to suggest that the crowd was much more modest than Trump has claimed. So it's a new phenomenon. It's a very disorienting phenomenon. And as I hope we'll discuss, it has very real political consequences. Russell, talk about what you've seen as, as the tipping point for this. Certainly, Donald Trump is not the beginning of this, this trend that we're seeing. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we when we first started looking at this and trying to make sense of it, Donald Trump had just barely announced his candidacy, and it wasn't clear that he would ever move from the periphery of politics into the center. We noticed things like Alex, Alex Jones down in Texas uh, warning people down there that the United States Army was planning to take over the state of Texas and declare martial law. This is the Jade Helm uh, conspiracy of, I think, 2015. And it you know struck us as really, really strange that... Um, that, that Texans would worry that the United States Army was planning to take over the state to the point that the governor of the time, Abbott, actually um, called on the National Guard to uh, step up their enforcement of individual rights in the state and keep a keen eye out for the possibility that the United States Army might be invading. So we, we, really, um, we really started to see this bewildering and, and um, mystifying almost uh, new conspiracism at work you're right, before, before Donald Trump took it into the White House. Uh, I mean, I have to say that 
you know, in Donald Trump's hands, it remains somewhat um, difficult to understand. We, we, we continue to be bewildered. For instance, people, scholars of conspiracy used to think of conspiracy theories as almost the province of um, losers or outsiders in politics. It was a way of making sense of power when you didn't have access to power, when you were a long way from it. Um, when Donald Trump was elected to the presidency, he said that the election by which he was elected was rigged. And it's really unusual to see the winners of election of elections saying that the election was rigged. So, so at that point, we really knew something very, very different was happening. And talk a little bit, Nancy, about traditional conspiracy theory, where this phrase comes from, and kind of how, the, how that evolved, the original idea of this. Yes, I think the conspiracy theory is just that. It's a theory. It's an explanation of some event. And what conspiracy theorists do is they collect, as you suggested, um, evidence, sometimes evidence in plain sight, but often evidence that official explanations overlook or lie about on this view. And they connect these dots to find patterns, and the patterns evolve into a narrative and an explanation. And usually they're always being amplified and made um, more, com- more complex. You add information, and the theory grows and grows. So, and it's a theory because it's an explanation of things. And uh, sometimes conspiracy theories are true. We want to acknowledge that. We want to give a certain due regard to conspiracy theories. Uh, when people say that um, the officials in Michigan were responsible for uh, tainting the water in Flint and then covering it up, it was a true conspiracy theory. So sometimes the evidence and the explanation is warranted, and sometimes it's not, and sometimes it's a very confusing mix of the two. But conspiracy theory is an attempt to use what we think of as ordinary reasoning, that is, evidence and argument to make the unbelievable believable and the unintelligible intelligible. And what we have today is the really quite dramatic uncoupling of conspiracy and theory. In fact, sometimes, though, we have found historically that what we take as conspiracies turns out to be uh, layers and layers of incompetence. Yes. yes. Yeah, that's, I very, mean, of- that's very right. I mean, I, I think sometimes, you know, what, cons- what classic conspiracy theorists do is they... They make the world into a much more orderly and controlled, controllable place than it actually is. And they discount the, the important role of incompetence and, and accident. You know, as, as Nancy says, uh, many times conspiracy theories are, are, are wrong. Um, but every, you know, sometimes they're right. And, and to know the difference, you actually have to look into them and, and think through the evidence. I was going to say that psychologists who study conspiracy theorists suggests that they have cognitive mechanisms that we all have but are much amplified. So, for example, they always see, as you just said, agency, active agency and will and deliberateness behind events, not accidents or unintended consequences. And they look for proportionality between a cause and an effect. So uh, 9-11 could not have been the work of 19 men plotting in some dusty corner of Afghanistan. It must have been more complex. The government was involved or Jews were involved or 
some other more complicated explanation. And then they uh, use this cognitive mechanism that we call confirmation bias, which is that they already have an idea of how the world works, who the enemies and who the friends are, and they collect that information that affirms that. So these are things that we all do, but in conspiracy theories, they're much amplified, and they really end up, uh, for, for some people at least, becoming a kind of mindset through which we view the world. And Russell, in many ways, though, they appeal to the same kind of baser instincts in people. I mean, as, as Nancy talks about, that, that part of what drives conspiracy theories is this need people have to try and make sense of something, not wanting to believe that, that even horrible things can be an accident, this, this idea of trying to impose some kind of order. And what we're seeing is that a lot of these lies and, and, and sort of this modern-day conspiracism is really appealing to that same mechanism in people. It's just doing it in a different way. Yeah, and when you talk about baser instincts, I think the one that really might be prominent in the in the new conspiracism and the conspiracy without the theory is the tendency to demonize um, your your you know your enemies or your foes. Um, take something like Pizzagate, which of course is no kind of theory; it's just a it's a, just a concoction of uh, allegations that says you know Hillary Clinton and her campaign chairman, John Podesta, were running a child sex trafficking ring out of a pizzeria in suburban Washington, D.C. Um, what this functions to do is not explain anything about the world, not to make the world more orderly or understandable in any way, but rather just to paint Hillary Clinton as a repository of pure evil. So that if you're inclined to disapprove of her or to think that she wasn't the right candidate to vote for, um, you, you, you could, uh, take satisfaction in your judgment, knowing that she was not just a less, you know, commendable candidate. She was actually profoundly evil. And Nancy, talk about this phrase that is the title of your book. A lot of people are saying, and why it is so insidious in what we're talking about. <laughs> right. So the, the characteristic of the new conspiracism, conspiracy without the theory, is that it takes the form of either bare assertion, the election was rigged, no evidence, no argument, or it takes the form of, I'm just asking questions, an innuendo, which, by the way, can be easily disowned, or it takes the form of Trump's mantra, which is a lot of people are saying, that is the validation of a conspiracist claim, is that it's being tweeted and retweeted and liked and shared. That is, it's a kind of social validation, not a validation in terms of what we think of as ordinary political uh, reasoning. And the, um, the, uh, the impact of this is that people assent to these conspiracy claims, these sheer assertions, by saying it's true enough. They may not literally be true, there's no evidence of it, there are no facts behind it, there's no argument behind it, but the general claim that it's making, that is of somebody being an enemy, of Democrats being treasonous, of Hillary Clinton being a child molester, the general claim is true enough. And l l let me give you a quote that really, I think, illustrates what true enough is, what assent to it is true enough is. This is Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who was, as you know, Trump's, uh, uh, um, what's her title? Uh, Press secretary. 
Yes, thank you, Press Secretary. <laughs> you can't but, bring but yourself President, to say it. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, uh, the President was asking her about Trump's tweet. He had tweeted a video that falsely purported to uh, show a Muslim migrant committing an assault. And her answer was, whether it's a real video, the threat is real. That is, the, the, the animus and the claim, uh, the animus of the claim garners assent and repetition. And it's true enough. Didn't we see, Russell, a huge amount of this really in the 50s during the McCarthy era? Yeah, there's kind of insinuation and innuendo, um, this exaggeration of, of political opponents into being enemies of the regime. So if you opposed... Uh, if you opposed uh, the, the, the party in power, the Eisenhower regime, you weren't just a, a good faith participant in democratic life. You were, you know, like you were a communist as opposed to the very idea of constitutional democracy. So that kind of you know, inflammation of, of political opposition um, and, and the denial of a legitimate status to your opponents in politics is something um, that got going in the 50s but was quickly quelled. You know, it was contained and and then defeated in the reaction against McCarthy and McCarthyism. And I think I think that's a very interesting observation you have that this is now arising again in, in politics, this tendency to paint your opponents as enemies of the regime. It's arising in a new way. And and I think uh, I really appreciate that because I think we are called upon again to contain this. I mean, for the sake of of sustaining constitutional democracy. There was also the same kind of innuendo, McCarthy talking about that he knew there were X amount of communists in the State Department, or he had the list in his pocket of yeah. 57 communists in government. I mean, it's very much like what we're seeing today in, in, in these respects, and, and Nancy's point about you know Sarah Sanders' comment fits right into that. I suppose Roy Cohn is the common thread in all of this. Yeah, yes. He is. Um, I, I don't want to say anything to um, validate or try to justify McCarthyism, but I will just point out that McCarthyism uh, rose up at a time when the communist threat worldwide and even domestically was viewed as a very serious political threat. This was the Cold War. This was the period. Whereas there's no threat today be, uh, in saying that the National Park Service doctored photographs of Trump's inauguration or that Hillary yeah. Clinton is running a sex, uh, tra- a child sex <laughs> trafficking ring out of a pizza parlor in, in Washington, D.C. It's not obvious what the threat is. And when, when the new conspiracists claim, as Trump repeatedly does, I mean, he is the conspiracist in chief, that the Democrats are treasonous and that the press is fake, uh, th- it's not obvious what the threat is. There's no yeah, real-world event so that is justifying... Uh, the rise of this malignant phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's such an important observation, uh, Nancy. I mean, that, that, that's really um, urgent because, I mean, when, you know, the, Hillary Clinton is, is not any, it, there's no background threat. Uh, you might decide not to vote for her. That doesn't mean you should say she should be locked up, that the uh, opposition is criminal. Um, you know, as Trump is increasingly saying, elections that, that elect Democrats are fraudulent. At a fundraiser earlier this month, um, he said there are a lot of close elections that, that seem to, he says, every single one of them went Democrat. If it was close, they say the Democrat, there's something going on, fella, Trump says. Well, 
as if there's something going on, these elections are fraudulent, without a speck of evidence, without um, any sense that the Democratic Party is a threat to constitutional democracy. But that's, that's what he's suggesting, that we should not respect the outcome of elections that elect Democrats. Give and this it. is the urgency behind the argument that we're making in this book, which is that the effect of this new conspiracism is, of course, disorientation, but it's also, and as importantly, delegitimation. What it does is to delegitimate, in the case that we're talking about, political opposition. And, you know, representative democracy depends upon an assumption of regular party rivalry and of the notion developed early on in Britain of the loyal opposition, and this is being uh, degraded. I mean, it's a little bit like the old movie Gaslight in terms of, of <laughs> what we're being given here. Yeah, that's right. That's right. term is used a lot, yeah. gaslight and false flags and so on. Right. To what extent, though, is this persuading anybody that wasn't there already? I mean, arguably, the people that are believing this are the people that would have believed and that do believe, you know, let's say Trump or Alex Jones or whomever. It, it's not really persuading anyone, is it, Russell? You know, I, I, I think that there is probably a small cadre of, of um of real true believers who, who think that, you know, there really was a child sex trafficking ring going on in a pizzeria somewhere in Washington, D.C., and Hillary Clinton was running it. And you're right. I think there's probably outside of that a very, you know, much larger number who, who view that as absurd and at least view it skeptically. Um, nonetheless, I, I think that the, the invitation to view your political opponents as profoundly evil, um, as deserving of being imprisoned, and, um, and the invitation to, to think that um, all facts that come out of knowledge-producing agencies like the National Weather Service um, or the Census Bureau or the Bureau of Labor Statistics are fake, are part of a conspiracy to make one side look good and the other side look bad. This is, I think, a very corrosive, potentially a very corrosive tendency. Because once, once we no longer believe that you know, statistics can be used to make decisions, it's going to be really hard to make effective decisions in democratic life. There is another very concrete result of this that's independent of how many people we think truly believe or think these things are true enough, and that is the president can act on his compromised sense of reality, and he does. That is, he uh, sees conspiracies in government agencies, and he fires the principles. He invents institutions to try to affirm uh, his notion of a conspiracy going on in elections, like his election integrity commission. He can uh, derail or hijack institutions to go along with his notion of conspiracy. So, for example, he has this idea that we have an invasion at the southern border, and in fact, on some versions, George Soros is bribing these migrants to come to the United States. And he sees this invasion as such uh, an almost military threat to the country that he calls up the American army to stand guard at the border. That is, things follow, policies follow, actions follow from this compromise sense of reality. And the other and thing, whether or, not, right. you know, whether or not a large proportion of the population believes these things, People in government, officials, and specifically Republicans, acquiesce. 
and it gives him license to change the policies and institutions of the country in accordance with the conspiracist claim. Russell? And, you know, the, uh, the, the acquiescence that Nancy's talking about um, it comes more readily because of the way uh, the, the new conspiracism lowers the standards for what it means to, to believe something. Nancy says that we're only, you know, conspiracists are only asking people to think that something's true enough. They're not really asking for belief. Uh, and, and, you know, here's an example. Um, there was an allegation that, that liberals conspired to create a clash between white nationalists and protesters in Charlottesville in, in 2017. And one member of Congress said, I'm not saying it's true, but I'm saying it's completely plausible. So that's the way the standard gets lowered. He's not asking you to believe that there was a conspiracy to create that, create that clash. He's just asking you to think it's plausible. And, and once he lowers the standard that way, he can enlarge the group to go along with the theory. How much of this, and, and Nancy, start with you, I'd like you both to comment on this. How much of this really comes from what has been a 40, 50-year decline in our belief in and faith in institutions? Hmm. There's certainly a, a, a historical background to this. One is um, the way in which political polarization has extended beyond you know, fights in the legislature about policy to fights about what constitutes usable knowledge for the purposes of making policy. So you have warring and alternative research institutes and warring and alternative notions of who should occupy uh, civil service uh, positions in these uh, agencies. So yes, behind it is both a political dispute and the extension of political dispute into uh, disputes about the authority and the meaning and the value of research ranging from institu- uh, universities to things like the National Weather Service. Russell? Yeah, and you know, I think our, our point isn't that, you know, citizens should, should have complete trust in all of their institutions, um, as we kind of imagine people might have, I don't know, in 1959. We, we think citizens should be very skeptical. Uh, they should be skeptical of their government. They should be skeptical of authority. And, uh, but we think that skepticism should be expressed in an attunement to evidence and, and argument and factuality. And, you know, may very well may, may turn out that there's an institution um, in a governmental institution that's not acting in the public interest and, and vigilant citizens need to be ready to make that claim. But making that claim persuasively requires, you know, access to the terrain of common sense and factuality. And it's that terrain that we're trying to defend here. So we're definitely not saying, you know, all institutions should always be trusted. We're trying to, um, to trying to defend uh, common access to the kind of evidence that allows us to disagree with each other and allows us to hold a government accountable. Russell Muirhead, Nancy Rosenblum. The book is A Lot of People Are Saying, The New Conspiracism and the Assault on Democracy. Nancy, Russell, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank okay, you, Jeff. Welcome. It's a pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for listening and for joining us here on Radio Who, What, Why. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.